Welcome to another episode of the Mindset Athlete Podcast with me, James Roberts, transformational coach, two-time Paralympian, and TEDx speaker. I have another awesome episode for you today, so let's get straight into it. And on today's show, I've got Gary Mendoza, Dr. Gary Mendoza. Dr. Mendoza's background is in personal training. Gary holds both British and American qualifications in personal training and has been a PT for 25 years. He's represented GB at the first ever idea personal convention in Washington, D.C. While working as a PT, he studied nutrition, graduating with a first in applied human nutrition from the University of Wales. He moved into personal tra- He moved into personal in- I read. He moved into training trainers and developed a successful nutrition and weight management course, teaching PTs the skill required to deliver a successful weight management program. These skills include nutrition, activity, and behavior change. This course formed the basis of his doctoral research. In 2006, he was awarded a PhD in nutrition, specializing in it in a multi-dimensional treatment for overweight and obese males. As a big part of the of this research looked at the psychology of change. Gary has since undertaken further training in motivational inter, interviewing and was fortunate to be trained by Professor Stephen Rolnick and William Miller, the founders of MI. His continued training in this field completing advanced MI training, introduction to counselling and a level 5 diploma in cognitive behavioural therapy. So welcome on to the show, Gary. Thanks for inviting us on, James. Oh, it's a pleasure all mine. Obviously, that's a lot of a mouthful. And <laughs> most people won't get to see some of that because I'm going to chop some of it where I made this <laughs> So if we re- rewind back to the very start, and mm-hmm. what was your fascination to to get into exercise and then obviously more specifically into into performance nutrition as I'll term it. Um, well, when I was in the forces, I I played rugby for the air force, so I was always pretty good at sport, really. And so I was kind of always kept very fit. And then when I left the forces, I worked for an American computer firm, and I was a telecommunications. Uh, technician and I was one of only three people in that supported uh, communications for this computer company in Europe so it was a pretty stressful job because it was all the banks the computers I worked on were what were called non-stop computers and so they ran the stock exchange all your cash points every single bank's cash points runs on these computers and I was kind of the last port of call if things were going horribly wrong if the engineer in the field couldn't fix it then it was kind of down to me and two others. We were the kind of next level of expertise. And it was really challenging, stressful, but I loved it. But I was getting stressed out. And I was getting headaches and God knows what. And my GP was actually great. I'd love to meet him again. And he actually said to me, he said, these headaches are stress related. He says, and if you don't change your job, I doubt you're going to see 50. And that was his exact words. And I'm like, oh, that's fairly stark. <laughs> so... I thought, well, I've always kept fit. So I I got into personal training. And, and at that time, there were no personal trainers in the UK. It was at a time when personal training was a thing in the US for um, celebrities, but pretty much no one else. 
and so I was one of the very first personal trainers in in the UK. Really, is it, then, is is that why you hold? Well, we, we we can't really call the British one a qualification. Um, I'll go into it a little bit because uh, I kind of elude the question from time to time. Obviously, mm-hmm. ours is not. Um, you could say legally enforced like say Australia or the US where you have to have that qualification or you could get sued. Yeah, it's, it is a bit different over here. So like I've got the British one, but I want, I actually at the time wanted to work in America. So I thought, well, the only way I can do that is to get an American qualification. So I trained with the American Council on Exercise and got their certification as well which at the time was, again, was fairly unique. The book for that is yay thick. It's like a ton of theory. It was like a three-hour exam, I think. And I actually sat it in Washington when I was out there because you couldn't take it in Europe at the time. So, yeah, I did that. And then working as a personal trainer, I found that all my clients asked me about nutrition and I'd be like, I'd be blagging it. I'd make things up. I'd read it out of a magazine. I'm going to tell, oh yeah, tell them that, that sounds good. And it got to a point where I thought, do you know what? I need to understand nutrition properly here. And so I decided to do a degree. And by the time I'd finished my degree, I was just way more interested in nutrition than I was personal training because I found nutrition fascinating. And so then I started to gravitate more towards sports nutrition and nutrition and weight management, really. What is this? Because I'm going to tie in both of them now as a question, Gary. In terms mm-hmm. of what's this fascination for the general populace for wanting to go from one diet to the next in terms of not not sticking it out for just seeing what would happen from a consistency perspective? What 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 is it in the human psyche that wants something new? I think it's actually more of a generational thing okay. in that, as a society now, we really value quick fix, instant kind of solve the problem. And nobody wants to hear, oh, well, this might take you a year, two years, whatever. They, they want the, the six-week or the 12-week program. And so if they don't see results quickly, they very quickly kind of lose motivation for that and, and want to move on to the next thing. And so I, I do think it's more of a kind of a societal problem. So how do we break that, man? Your education of the client. You have to educate the client about... I always, One of my favourite sayings when I work with, because I still work with kind of CEOs of companies and that for weight management, but one of my favourite sayings with them is, look, it's your lifestyle that got you fat and only changing your lifestyle is going to get you thin again. And if you can't buy into that, then I won't work with you because you have to kind of understand that because another an analogy I'll often use with them is you are now on the peak of the mountain. You've reached the top. This is, let's just say this is as fat as you're ever going to be. How long has it taken you to get up here? And nobody ever says to me, well, I woke up this morning and I was three stone heavier. I don't know how it happened. It's like, oh, well, when I was in my teens, I was this way. And then when I was in my twenties, I was this. And so it's taken possibly decades to get to this point. So I'll say to him, right, well, you've got two options now at this point. You're on the top of the mountain. You've got two options. You can either jump off, which tends to hurt. Jumping off a mountain generally doesn't end up with a good result. Or we can walk back down the other side. 
And I said, the lifestyle change is the equivalent of walk back down the other side. It's going to be slow. It's going to be steady, but we'll get there in the end and you'll be in a far better place. And one of the things I think we need to shift, because we always talk about weight and we always talk about scales. But certainly in my PhD, I told the trainers that kind of ran the weight management program, weight is going to be in there. People are always going to want to know what their weight. But I want you to put a lot more emphasis on health, energy levels, how you feel, that type of thing. These kind of less tangible things that people think about. Because if we just rely on weight, it's going to be great all the time the scales are going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. But the minute it jumps up by a pound or doesn't move, they'll catastrophize the whole thing. And it'll be, oh, that's it. I've wrecked the diet. It's all over. I'm wasting my time with this. And they'll drop out of the program. I says, whereas if you've educated them about what's going on with their body physiologically and how fat won't come off linear and everything, I said, they will accept that from time to time, they're going to hit plateaus because they're concentrating on the more kind of important things, really. So, and there's a psychological element to that because this catastrophizing, you know, so people do fitness programs and they'll join. So I was a gym manager for years and you'll see people join the gym and they're really motivated and they're gung ho and, oh yeah, I'm going to be coming in three to five times a week. And you sit there thinking "Hmm, that'll happen. (laughs) So yeah, they do come in for three to five times for the first couple of weeks when they've initially joined up, but then slowly it just tails off. And then you don't see them again. And what's happened, it's a similar thing. They've got this, what we, in psychology, we call it um, bar underestimation. And it's, we enter programs, whether they be weight management, fitness, whatever, with an unrealistic view of what we're going to achieve and how long it's going to take to achieve. And then when we don't hit those kind of targets, we think, well, that's it. It's ruined. It's, it's over. And and in cognitive behavioural therapy, we call it catastrophizing. And so people, oh, it's a catastrophe. It's gone out. It's gone out. I'm just going to add my takeaway. I'm not going to bother with the fitness. It's all a waste of time. And so they just give up on the whole thing. And so you need to educate clients right at the start when they first join your program about, look, this is going to be difficult. There's going to be times when it's just going to go wrong and you're not going to be happy with what's going on. And when you tell them this right at the start, when they sign up with you, they're like, no, no, that won't happen. I'm really motivated this time. And you're the guy I should be working with and all this. And you're like, no, I'm telling you now it's going to happen. And I really drum it into them. And I say to them, when it does happen, I want you to approach it in this way. I want you to sit down at the end of the day when it's all gone pear shaped and you've had the takeaway and the beer and the wine and whatever. I said, I want you to sit there and I want you to come up with one thing that you can do differently so as this won't happen again. I said, and as long as you can come up with one thing, that whole experience has been really useful to you because we're now no longer looking at it as a failure. We're looking at it as feedback. And so now when it happens and they ring you up and they go, I'm going to drop out the program because it's all screwed up or whatever, you can go, Do you remember we had that conversation when we first started work about how to deal with a setback like this? And they'll kind of vaguely go, "Mm, I vaguely remember something. And then I say to them, well, think about what you're going to gain from this. Because when we make changes in life, when we're kids learning to ride a bike, we don't, very few people jump on a bike and ride it first time. 
you kind of get on, you have trainer wheels or your parents are holding the seat or whatever it might be. And we have wobbles and we fall off. But the thing is, we get back on and go again. And eventually we master it. And that's the way you, you should approach getting fit, weight management, whatever it is really in life. It's like, accept that there's going to be the odd failure, the odd cock up and just move on, learn from it and then get back on the bike and try again kind of thing. You would agree that CEOs should know better because the company works exactly the same way in terms of it's not going to be linear. Well, the exception being probably like Amazon or, or um, tech companies with it during the COVID pandemic, they pretty much went like that because you had no other choice. But from a business perspective, there's going to be peak, if we use the fitness industry as probably like case in point, there's going to be key, uh, peaks and troughs. That yeah. as an industry designer, we could we can pretty much go in on a normal time of the year, June, July, very quiet. And then mm. obviously people go back to school, have the kids go back to school and then go back to normality in September, get ready for Christmas and we start the cycle all over again. So it, it, it's it's interesting that you, you say even they, they kind of, when, I think it's probably more so psychologically when it's somebody else or somebody else's problem you you, you're very evident to the problem as well that's common sense why wouldn't you look for feedback versus looking at the the out and out uh failure as being a failure Uh, whereas it's when yourself you don't do that you kind of put the the blinkers on and oh yes the problem oh it's a really big problem but you've got to remember these ceos are um they're as susceptible to the same pressures that every other client is in terms of social media, the messages that are being put out there, the quick fix diet, the this food burns fat, this is the best exercise to burn fat, whatever it might be, they're they're getting bombarded with those messages as much as anyone else. And they're not experts in those fields. They've got their own field of expertise where they'd be very confident in what they're doing and, and, put you in your place if you said any different but with something like weight management they're not experts and so they're just as susceptible to all the rhetoric that's out there as anybody else well it's probably marketing woo woo for, for obviously you and i we know it's it's like oh why would anybody any i'm not going to say sucker but why would anybody believe that pile of crap when it's being put it's like all it all it's doing at the end of the day is put, um, I lost my train of thought, but it, it's preying on or preying on people's insecurities and their vulnerabilities. Hundred percent, yeah. I mean, that marketing relies on that. It, it relies on if you keep bombarding the same people with the same message, ultimately they'll believe that message. It's kind of you know, if you say something enough times, people start to believe it, and and that's what a lot of these diets rely on. You know, it's like, well, if I keep pumping that out there and enough trainers start supporting it, people are going to think that's that's the one to go with. And they won't bother to look behind it and maybe look what the science is or anything like that. That they just accept that, well, if this celebrity says this, it must be true kind of thing. So that the public are susceptible to that. And it's one of the things in my research that to me was quite important all the personal trainers that took part in my research, I educated them about nutrition. And when I say educate about nutrition, not diets, 
I taught them about the macronutrients, the micronutrients, how the body digests and absorbs and utilizes energy. And so as they could pass that information on to clients, because if you can educate people properly about nutrition, they can often rationalize for themselves when they see some of these diets and go, well, that wouldn't work because that's not the way the body works physiologically. So I think educating people properly is a key part of any successful weight management program. So as individuals can make better choices based on good information. But do you not think, well, now you've got your PhD, that we need to obviously start this in schools, like primary school level, as, as to go from the bottom up? Obviously, you've got you to teach adults because then they can make in this, uh, predisposed for themselves and, and obviously they give good impressions to their kids and obviously kids are going to replicate what they see. But do you think it obviously comes down to, I know Jamie Oliver, I don't know if it was a marketing thing or or whatever, there's probably some good intentions of trying to change food behaviour in secondary school and and primary school in this country. But if we don't obviously teach, keep the principles of what, I'm not going to say good diet looks like because... I, I I don't like when people say to me I, I eat clean. It's like and I and I spoke to, I think one bonus of this podcast I guess speak to lots and lots of people that are very very experts and and, and get to go on t- television as a result. And she said she said, I I need to bring this out because it's funny. You wouldn't you wouldn't see anybody eating out the bin. So the, the alternative is dirty. That would be dirty eating. I think there I think there is um there is a illness that people do do that so I was like well but that's obviously nowadays but coming back to to my original question do you think obviously we've got to start the the education as early as possible oh 100 i mean prevention is way better than cure we are far better off stopping people getting obese in the first place than we ever are trying to kind of reverse it once people are obese but it's not just education if it was as simple as that, I don't think we'd have an, an obesity problem because I could go out into the high street now and say to most people, what do you need to do to reduce your body fat, lose a bit of weight? And most of them would go eat more fruit and veg, have less takeaways, not drink as much alcohol, maybe do a bit more exercise, get a bit more active. So if they can tell me even those basic things, The big question and the one that nobody likes to ask is, why don't you do it? So that's a behavioral change question because the information's there and most people have got the information. So the question has to be, why do they not act on it? Now, part part of the way you can shift people is change the environment because we've got an obesogenic environment. Everything is geared up to helping people take calories on board. We allow fast food outlets within a radius of schools. We definitely shouldn't do that. We allow the fast food, we allow the food industry actually to dictate a lot of our policy. And the government are scared of the food industry. They, they'll pay lip service to oh, obesity is really bad and it's getting worse and it's the biggest disease. We've got the worst levels of obesity in Europe. They've been saying that for 20 years. And they've been saying we're going to do something about it. And they've been saying we're going to police it. And yet they never do. 
and they say, oh, we're working with the food industry. No, don't work with the food industry. Work on the food industry because the food industry's job is to sell you food. And they're not going to change anything that changes that. Poacher is not going to turn booming gamekeeper at this point. So don't work with the food industry. Work on them. The food and drugs kind of um, representatives, they're out there to sell product. And much as they say, oh, yeah, we are going to try and improve the health profile and we'll move sweets away from the till and what have you. Nah, we've got to legislate and just stop it. And so that's part of it. We need to change it, the environment and not just the food environment. When we build a new housing estate, one of the first things they look at is access for cars. Why is that? First thing they should look at is access for pedestrians and cyclists. Cars should be a secondary thought. We, we should stop cars coming in to city centres. We should almost impose an active environment onto people, I think. So as, so as it's a, an easier choice to be active than it is to jump in the car and just go around the corner there. Because in most people's minds, their first thought whenever they're going to go, oh, go by car. Nobody really, nobody's first thought is, oh, I'll just walk down there. So we need to change that kind of attitude as well. And then within schools, I think Jamie Oliver was right, we need to improve the quality of meals. But you've got to remember with children, the gatekeepers to food are the parents. And so the meals that parents are preparing for children, that might take education. And part of the problem is we removed home economics from, from the syllabus. And so a lot of people haven't got cooking skills. I mean, I've taught personal training courses and we've been talking about stir frying food or whatever when we're doing the nutrition part and i've actually had a student say to me oh how do you make mashed potato now you would think that's a basic skill that everybody could do and yet i've got a generation that haven't got those cooking skills so how do we expect people to prepare healthy meals low calorie options and so on if they haven't got the cooking skills in the first place if all they know is shove it in this box and press this button till it goes ping. That's their cooking skills. So we've got an issue there. We need education in that area as well. So it's not just about what you eat. It's as equally, it's about why you eat and, and how you could eat better. And then there's, a, there's a, an economic disparity because if you look at obesity, you see far more obesity in lower income groups. Okay. And so we need to kind of address that. Is, the, is there a perception that eating healthy is expensive? I might give the Americans that, that, it, that, that I won't call it an excuse, but generally eating healthier is, is for whatever reason more expensive in the US, which it kind of baffles me. But you raise a good point from the social economical factor, Gary. So I'm going to ask you this one. I don't generally talk politics on the show, <laughs> but obviously a politician has brought this up. Yeah. yeah. As of, uh, it's only probably about two weeks old at the most as we're recording this. Of, I can't remember the the the, the MP in, in question that said it, but obviously said obviously for those those people in those positions, why don't you just go to? I'm not plugging supermarkets now, but. Tesco, Tesco's value range 
uh, what's Saint Sainsbury's Basic. I can't remember what ours is. And 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 I actually looked at the 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 article the BBC did and looked at the the content of the food <laughs> compared to premium. I'm thinking, well, uh, I'm just just off the top of my head, the meat equivalent was. I think it was like f- less than 50% in the value pack and the rest was sawdust. And then the premium, it was like 80%. So yeah. if we're talking on logic, people, if the money was no, not a not a disparity, they wouldn't pick that option. Because it's like, well, why would I eat a product that's got 50% less? It should, in theory, have 100% in both of them. But have fifty left 50% in one and the rest is... Well, traditionally, what we would find in a sausage, but uh, that's what historically it is. But you yeah. wouldn't choose that option. You'd go, well, I want the one that's got the most meat in it. Thus, it's a meat product. So, what's your take on when the 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 conservative government comes out with a kind of a, a statement? It's not just like a that. conservative government. You can go back thirty years. Labour, Conservative, whoever, all MPs have done the same thing. They've all been kind of bullied by the food and drink industry. And they've all said we're going to do something about obesity, and none of them have. I mean, part of the problem when you talk about like the, the different people don't know how to read food labels. So you're making an assumption that someone could go into a supermarket and understand that actually this is better quality than that. Because for a lot of people, they don't. I've I've actually taken clients one to one round a supermarket and showed them how to read soup labels properly. And they're like, Well, I didn't realize that's how it worked. So that's an education issue straight away. The The thing about um, the cost, there, there's been quite a few bits of research on this that looked at how much more expensive it is to eat healthy in terms of more fruit and veg and what have you. It's not massively different in terms, you know, we are not talking hundreds of pounds here. We might be talking tens of pounds, I'm guessing. I don't is know that a that. week or per month? I think it was per week. That's that's not a lot when you think it's of it. not really, but again, it still relies on people having cooking skills. Mm-hmm. You know, when we've got a generation of children that you can show them where a potato comes from and they don't realize they think they just come in bags, that they didn't realize that potatoes grow in the ground and are dug up, they've got no conception of what food is. So that's the next generation who are now going to go on to be parents. What are they going to teach their kids about food and healthy eating and preparing meals? Because they will have none of those skills. So, I mean, show my age here, but my parents, my mum cooked everything, you know, literally right across the board. And so my wife will tell you, I never do cooking. I'm lazy, but I do know how to cook. But we've got a generation now who's most parents, they almost probably both went out to work. And so they didn't really have a lot of time to prepare meals. So it was a lot easier to come in and chuck things in a microwave or whatever. And so kids aren't learning even the very basics of cooking. So like I say, how to make mashed potato, how to scramble an egg, anything like that. So we've kind of lost all those skills. And a a lot of kind of healthy eating is just about understanding how to prepare food and and what what your choices might be. It's the, it's the enjoyment factor of it. I, I, I've had people say, well, um, I won't name the person, but in terms of they, they came to me uh, a few weeks ago of the, they had a weight issue and the husband cooked, but 
obviously, if he was out of town on business, resort to a takeaway. Yeah. And the, the, the dilemma that she faced was her her mother wouldn't allow her in the kitchen. So that's a behavioral wow. thing. Because yeah. it's like, well, you're, you're creating um kind of like a gate that doesn't need to be there. Uh, if we use my, myself as an example, I'm probably in that age bracket that you're talking about. I'm 36. Both my parents can cook. Mm. I just chose not to to take it in when I was younger. It wasn't yeah. until I went to, to before I went to university, uh, and people asked me this: "Well, what what did you do?" It's like, well, I figured it out because it was. The, that, the, but that's kind of a sport mentality in terms of that's a problem. The solution is to figure it out. Of yeah. well, I need to be able to learn how to use the grill, use the oven use the oh crap I can't think of the word <laughs> on top of the on top of the stove and or I, the alternative is I starve yeah but I I figured it out and okay I don't cook all the time but I when I do cook I enjoy it so for me it's it, it probably helps that that behavior that's been created I I I, I was brought up like that at eight years old of my mum went on a, a final diet because we don't really like to use the word in that in the household. What it's in the in the in the, in the mainstream media because technically, in my household, it's a lifestyle. It's what is def- defined by the dictionary, uh-huh. and for that, I've eaten the same way since I was. Obviously, the quantities have changed, and you know, from for, 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 from a performance standpoint, obviously, I've got to eat slightly differently to yeah. for whatever sport I'm doing. But I never had a problem even being weaned onto food. Parents would ask, Mum, what what, what are you doing to make James eat his vegetables? You see, that's another prime example when you say about behaviour. That's a behavioural thing, you know. Parents sitting down with their children and having a meal at the table. We don't do that anymore. Now, we know that children who eat meals at the table with their parents, we know this from research, they have far better eating habits and they will tend to be more adventurous around food because they will see their parents eating a carrot, broccoli, swede, turnip, whatever it might be. And because it's a family occasion around the table, they learn those habits at an early age. Whereas if all a child knows is, oh, I get dumped in front of the telly while telly tubbies is on or whatever, and I eat a meal in front of the telly, they will carry that through into their teens and into their adult life. And we know that when people eat meals in front of the television, they consume more calories because you're now so intent on watching the television that your brain is focusing all those audio and vocal cues from the TV program, and it kind of forgets to register the food you're eating. And so you overeat. And so there's another behavior that we're ingraining in youngsters at a very early age that we almost need to unstitch somehow. Well, the challenge with that, Gary, is obviously the, the, the invention of the mobile phone, the cell phone, the tablet of... God, yeah. Unless you turn the internet off, <laughs> you can't control somebody going into another room and doing what they're doing. Because obviously I, I had my meal later than the rest of my family last night so the example is i think i think the family did ask oh you working in 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 the room as well i was like no i'm what i was watching youtube but i was concentrating what i was eating 
mm-hmm. and then I can pause the video. I can re- if I've 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 obviously do the other reverse of what you just said, but I'm concentrating on what I'm eating, and then I might have to rewind what I've watched because I've not I'm not fully engaged yeah. and absorbing the information. So thus, I probably program myself to kind of go well. Yeah, you, you can you you can eat. you need to focus on eating because yeah. that's the primary source to. I could say I've probably been brainwashed from an early age from a sport perspective, and I keep reiterating that of it. It, it is a I'm going to go out and say it's a, almost like a cult because it's it's a behavior in terms of if you want to succeed, you need to act in a certain way to be able to be the finished product. I'm not saying I was the finished product, but a lot of my behaviors are, are cultivated on, well, I need to eat fruit and veg and it's automatic. But athletes are a good example of, of where they're lax educate because the English Institute for Sport now, they have a program where young athletes come into the program. But one of the things they look at is their nutrition education and their nutrition skills, and they teach them cooking skills and things like this, because if they're going to put them up in flats or in dorms or whatever, they need to be able to prepare their own food. And as you rightly say, especially in elite sport, nutrition is really important. One of those. And so these kids need to know how to do this. It's not a case of just telling them, look, you need to be eating the right amount of carbohydrate, protein, fat, and everything else. They need to know how to prepare meals and look after themselves and so, and and very often we have to teach that to them as well. So, well, that's that, that's not great to hear that. But obviously, if we remind back to my days in elite sport. It's back to the old, you know, the writing it down stuff. None of these apps. So I said to the sports nutritionist, "It's like I don't want to be coming in." I think I was like my first year of uni. I don't want to be coming mm-hmm. home for five six six o'clock at night with lectures and then have to go train it and then having to measure every every little microgram and they went well fair enough james but i think it would probably have done me better and served my clients better now this is a massive reflection now and <laughs> uh, 15 years later if i'd have known all that information because i could be able to go okay just looking at what you're presenting me in a picture this is how much it is but 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 away you go whereas i can't do that so that's probably uh, a criticism of myself as uh, being what would i be late teens early 20s yeah. i think i know best as okay from a from a recovery standpoint i'm right because the last thing i want to do is elongate the lot the recovery process of let me just consume the the the, the produce relax and then go to bed and then start the day all over again the next day mm-hmm. So, but the criticism as probably well, closing on middle age is you've missed an opportunity there to 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 fine tune your your knowledge around nutrition because obviously nutrition is probably the one that really changes compared to or definitely compared to training maybe not towards behavior and mindset and things like that because that's something that's coming to the forefront now mm-hmm. more than ever. When I, when I worked as a nutritionist for Knott's Forest. I worked with 12 year olds upwards in terms of educating them about nutrition. Um, And we'd have the parents in the room as well. So I was educating the parents as much as I was the kids, because obviously the parents were going to be feeding the kids, but by doing both, 
it meant that the parents understood what their children should be eating to perform optimally, but also kids would put pressure on the parents in terms of, oh, yeah, but I want this meal because Gary said this does this and that does that. <laughs> and so it, it, it became a two-way street, which was really quite interesting. But I think that's the age to catch them at. And with athletes, it's fairly easy because obviously these kids are highly motivated. They all think they're going to be professional footballers. Very few of them ever did. But at that age, when they're just signed to kind of play for Knott's Forest at 12 years old, a kind of a form of intent, it's not a contract or anything, they all think they're going to be professional footballers. And so they're gung-ho for anything that kind of, because you work with the first team and you say, well, look, this is what the first team do. They're all like, oh, well, I want to do that then. So with young athletes, they're quite motivated to learn about nutrition. You can motivate them quite easily. The skill needs to come in how do we motivate the general populace about nutrition to make it fun exciting interesting so as they make better choices that's the hundred dollar question oh god yeah if you could answer well with ceos you see now with ceos it's interesting because when i work with them i very rarely talk about weight but what i'll often talk to them about is your performance in meetings your ability to make good decisions, your energy levels, because they're all things that float their boats. You know, that's what makes them a good CEO. That's what makes their company make money. So their motivators are those things. So if I can find out what an individual's motivation is, I will normally try and always tailor the nutrition talk and that around that. So as it, it for them, they can see the relevance of it. Well, you could say, come back to that, that question you, you, you posed, early on of you know questioning people as why haven't you done it in terms of i think some of my consultation questions i don't always use these but you know what's your sex drive like what 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 it what is your energy level like at the the beginning of the day are you reliant on coffee are you reliant on monster energy drinks to get through the day in terms of well okay instead of focusing on putting a band-aid on something you need to solve the root causes possibly your sleep your nutrition yeah uh i am motivation to the cows come in i even did a tedx talk on it but i picked the wrong <laughs> wrong year to come out but i said obviously motivation inside its day because it's like if if you want motivation when you need it most it's not going to be there it's 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 you're going to have to find it from a external point of view or a secondary source which isn't yourself so it's not normally the motivation that's the problem it's coming back to what you said earlier of how much do you want how how much is the reward i don't want to really call it a treat or reward how much are you are you to 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 profit from if you succeed have you 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 commit 100 percent into into this and at any wobble, you you don't fold. I, th- I think motivation is massively misunderstood because I don't think people really understand what motivation is. A lot of what, certainly what trainers talk about motivation is extrinsic motivation or external motivation. If you look at self-determination theory and what we should be trying to build in our clients is intrinsic motivation. And the things that build that are education capability and enjoyment and often that gets overlooked and if you're not building those three components 
there's going to be no drive to make better choices. So you need to kind of look at your own program and think, do I do this for my clients? Do I educate them? Do I give them the skills to do these things? And is it enjoyable? Is it fun? Because if it's not one of those, then why on earth are you doing it? Well, I've got to, got to remember what, what what's the driver for you as a coach. What's going to, I don't want to use the word motivate. What's going to get you fired up to go every single morning? If it's money, that's obviously not going to last. No. <laughs> Because that's that's going to come a point of, oh, I can't even remember that. Oh, you know, one of the the newest Dragon Den, his Diaries of a CEO podcast. Oh yeah, he, yeah, he the guy that's the marketing whiz, isn't he? I can't remember his name, but I know you mean Stephen. That's it, Stephen. He doesn't need a plug, but in terms of most people <laughs> know what I'm talking about. He interviewed somebody who'd been on Love Island, and her goal was to make a million, uh, yeah, a million pounds. Oh, I've made that. I need to make two million. I just stopped her. Like, well, hang on a second. If you can't be fulfilled by making those, what will two, three, four, five, yeah. six million pounds do? Because that's not the that's yeah. The, just keep coming up with numbers. There's a, dra- there's a drive to 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 want to 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 keep showing up and and do that. I can't knock that in terms of like from a drive perspective. Is like, well, that's. That's some some uh, some grit and consistency because that's not easy to do in certain mm-hmm. marketplaces. But in terms of what was the what's the purpose of it? What was the the and I'd, I'd seen something just yesterday about you know difference between influencers. Some who've got doing it for they're trying to create change. And some do it for the drive of the, of the money. It's like, well, the money's not going to last because that's not, for most people, not enough of a motivator after no. a certain point because it's like, well, pff, money's not really making me happy. What, why, why am I doing it? Versus obviously creating change is, is quite a broad statement. But yeah. in terms of if, if you're creating change for people, it doesn't we always talked about off air between like it doesn't matter what price point that is because for me for me as a coach or for any coach that's short term for us but that could be monumentous for the client or the or the other person because it's for them it's like i finally stopped the rot of you obviously we mentioned decades like years years of, of pain I start. I finally find the person that's found the magic key, and obviously that's a domino effect of that's one person has a knock on 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 their family and then people surrounding yeah. them. So we only saw we see the benefits financially. I probably look at it. Hey, it's a windfall from from that perspective, but to see people happy and to 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 be able to revel in that 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 success. I, I get more satisfaction out of that than in my 10-year career as an athlete. As people would probably find that baffling. Some people would qu- do challenge me on that as well. It's it's You were more motivational in that arena than you are. And that's like, no, I, I thoroughly get more, more of a buzz from other people's success than I did my own. Yeah. No, I totally get that. I mean, I love education and I love it when trainers come back to me and go, oh, I use that and it really worked. And they're, they're almost surprised. <laughs> it's almost like they didn't really believe you, but well, I'll give it a go and see. And then it works. And they're like, wow. 
because one of the things I always used to say to personal trainer, I used to say to me, if you're really good at your job, your job in life is to get rid of your client. And they're like, oh, what do you mean? I said, well, there has to come a point where if you've given your client the support, the education, everything, I said, they understand what they're doing it. They've built that into their lifestyle. They'll get out there. They're happy. They're fit. They don't need you anymore. I said, so if that if they get to that point where they don't need you anymore, you have done a brilliant job. Oh, I've, got to like, give, oh, I've, I've never looked at it like that. I've got to give my my tutor on my training course the kudos because he said that, uh, okay, I did an accelerated one in six weeks, but he said that's what you've got to, and that's seven years ago? Yeah. Of Your job is to get the the man or woman to a point that they're not even reliant on the industry and then you've done your job properly 100 percent. if they decide and to come back for whatever that's obviously a personal choice of oh i want to maybe come back for gaining more knowledge around said topic you're the man to do it you're the woman to do it that's fair yeah. enough obviously that's a different that's a behavior you've you've created a, a community and a tribe that people uh, like know and trust you so they'll go back to what's tried and tested of uh, I've got I've had a few like that of they've gone away for a little bit come back I've tried things like put money into oh what was the one of them is the dietary shake or something like that and they spent like 300 quid on it yeah I said obviously so it's up to you if you take it you're old school I won't I won't I won't fault you that have you if you paid your money obviously you're gonna use it because Otherwise, it's money down the toilet. And then, obviously, after the, the, the period of having it, oh, I didn't work. I, I told you that before. Right? But in terms of it's letting the other person make their mistakes and then go from there as, okay, in an ideal world, you probably want to send it back before you've used it and get, get a refund. <laughs> but it's probably harder, than, harder to do than probably people would expect. But it it is a challenge from a nutritional perspective. It was, I'm probably fortunate that of my upbringing, my parents were in the forces, like yourself. Um, so I went to an American school, so there's more of a focus on physical education, health, it's a requirement to, to, to graduate as you need to do a, a minimum of a year in physical education. So even the kids that don't like it, it's like you got to lump it and do it. Yeah. And then, and then go, and obviously the ones that like it a lot, I'll do four years of that. And then it's, <laughs> it's an easy, it's an easy grade. And, and I did health my last year in high school and I probably should have done it earlier because I didn't enjoy how it was taught, but we're talking yeah probably yeah 16 17 years ago so nutrition has come a long 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 way in, in, oh, yeah. in that period of and then obviously i went to to, to do um an undergrad in sports science because i wanted to learn more of you know behind the scenes of what i'm seeing a glimpse of as an athlete be it, you know biomechanics physiology uh lactic that stuff was interesting from okay this this stuff is fascinating and I think sport, even development level, was like, well, you need to have a backup plan. 
Yeah. Just in case sports doesn't work. It's like, well, I might do it. Might as well do a degree that I'm going to enjoy for three, yeah. three, four years. Uh, and oh, maybe the beginnings of my Bennett, my business. Seven years, I regretted it a little bit because it's like, well, maybe I should have gone and done business. Blah blah blah. I don't regret it now because now I've I've got the toolkits to, uh, as well as my my my. my, my I can't speak as well as my postgrad in sociology, which is probably very similar to behavior stuff, but more from a social perspective. I can virtually go for a person as it's not that I don't interrogate the person, but in terms of I can get to the root causes. Okay, you've come at service level, which is weight management, that you want to lose 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 pounds plus. Mm hmm let's get to the root cause of what it what is causing you to have that lifestyle in the first place so so yes. it's so every conversation for me is interesting because like well everybody's going to have the same agenda for their outcome or the result of they want to lose x amount of weight but how they get there is is is, is fascinating yeah and then we've all got their own motivations and i think this is what a lot of trainers misunderstand they because trainers very often are just into fitness and enjoy it and they like going to the gym and they love exercise and everything else they lose sight of the fact that for most people they don't enjoy exercise and they don't like going to the gym and so they need to find out what that individual's motivation is what their drive is because what you're looking at when people say they want to lose weight is what we would call a surface need which is no which is okay but it won't last you you have to find out what the driving need is. In other words, what's going on at that lower level that's going to kind of keep you going forward? Well, the the pain ones with that is that you know the kids or the grandkids being able to play with the kid. Yeah, that bring people to tears. I'm not saying do it deliberately, but in terms of that that motivator alone, as if somebody would say to me, "Oh, you're doing it so." You can be there for a family member in 10, 20 years' time. Okay, I need to pull my socks up. Yeah. People often don't think about the future consequences. I think often when people make decisions, they make them in the moment based on what their current situation is. And one of the things I look at with decisional balance in particular is future consequences of decisions. So if you don't do this now, what's life going to look like in five years' time, 10 years' time? And very often people don't look at that. They just think, oh, I'll do it now. But it's like, yeah, but in the long term, this could be the outcome if you don't. And when you get people to reflect on that, that often is enough to help them shift as well. Well, I'm I'm quite fortunate that my family is very pessimistic. So we play out every scenario. <laughs> of, it's, a, it's, probably a, it's, it's probably a blessing and a curse. Because people would probably say from a negative perspective, why would you contemplate something going wrong? It's like, well, if I if I contemplate it, I'm not saying do it, but if I contemplate it, I've seen it. Yeah. That's the worst case scenario. Nobody would want that to happen. Worst case scenario. But I think with visualization and things like that, within psychology for the athlete, it's like you play out scenarios because it's like, well, if if this is what I want to happen, but nine times out of ten that's never going to happen. The the perfect storm is somewhere in the middle, or 
you know, c- c- catastrophe strikes and all these things go wrong. Oh, it's happened. Uh, and I'll use an example. It happened to me in a rowing World Cup. Um, uh, my rowing partner caught a massive big crab. So boat stopper at the beginning of the row. I went, uh-huh. holy crap. Well, we've lo- we're going to come last today. She, she, she kind of went, well, I guess, I guess it was, I've made a mistake. I've got to write it. And I think the team manager said after the race, I've never seen a crew like devastate the entire field so quickly. So it went from being last to first within 200 meters. So <laughs> I've gone from in the split second, probably about five, 10 seconds of, oh shit, <laughs> to, I wouldn't like to be anybody else in this field. <laughs> but, but I, th- but I think it is, it is what you talk about. It's, it's finding the, the motivator, that cue that's gonna, the, the, the impetus to, okay, it might not be the opportune time today. Okay. You've not hit rock bottom. The, 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 where you're at right now is not rock bottom. I don't know why, why this, there's this love affair with hitting rock bottom when you don't yeah. have to. Why, it's why? Not, that's probably not the right words, but in terms of, I, I, I've, I've hit rock bottom, but my, my body was probably sending me cues because uh, I worked in the educational field for a little bit as a teaching assistant. So I know what you're talking about in terms of like nutrition and things like, of survival. My body gave me a panic attack and then I took notice. Mm. Just like, Whereas there were probably earlier warning signs. Uh, I think the behavior, uh, you know, you were talking about with kids going to school with chocolate bars. I, I conformed to the, it's like I can't judge kids or the school for allowing it. But if I'd have stuck to my guns, I probably would have stayed healthier. And then I wouldn't have had, yeah. well, I'm speculating, but. I wouldn't have had any of those mental health issues as a result, but that was a wake up call as well. I don't want these to happen again. Thus, I've got to obviously get myself into into shape. So I thought I'd share that with with people as that's similar to to your job of you maybe need to look to ch- change career paths. Um, mine was probably more self in in enforced as well. If I don't particularly want to be verbally abused by the pupils every single day. Um, I don't want to be micromanaged and things like that. Mm. Whereas I probably do that with my own business now. But I'm the boss. I can. I, I probably <laughs> could. I probably could say, well, if I'm cat- catastrophizing and people make me aware of that, okay, maybe I need to take a day off, or I need to maybe not have my foot on the accelerator. Maybe I need to be work smarter, not harder and things like that but obviously that all comes with you could say two choices trial and error or or you obviously you learn from from expertise as to people telling you i've trod the path i I think this is why i think it's quite important that we include counseling skills into coaching because not only would that benefit clients because the coaches would understand mental health as much as anything else but actually it would benefit the coaches in terms of their degree of self-awareness and using reflection and things like this i think we most probably have a healthier coaching population as well 
because it's definitely something that's a big part of being a counsellor is the self-awareness, reflection and so on. And we, we don't teach that to coaches as, as such. You know, we teach them the physiology of exercise and possibly nutrition, not always. But we don't teach them about these kind of more soft skills around psychology and behaviour and what have you. And I think that, that's a big gap in the way we train. I, I probably should have known better, Gary. I did support science, so I did elements <laughs> of self-reflection, uh, self-efficacy. I've done all these theories, and, and that's the aspect of sports science I preferred was psychology because it mm. was more useful uh, from a practical sense because you could take what you were learning in the classroom let's see if it works in practice in the real yeah. world and 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 see if I can implement it with a human being being myself so and I think what my professors and lecturers said I was quite very, I was very very skilled at obviously putting things into uh, from practice into coursework because I could back it up as well this is the theory this is how you apply it and this is how it will work mm. and what was the paper I wrote I did it on burnout. My family like, no, there's no such thing <laughs> as burnout in sport. We're talking 10 years ago. Yeah. It's like, well, I'm finding article after article on BBC Sport with rugby, cricket. I don't think there was anything else at the time. It's like, well, if they're spending... Obviously, cricket's six months of the year out of the, out of the UK, be it in tours in Sri Lanka, India, yeah, yeah. Australia... They're gonna miss the families. They're gonna. There's gonna be an aspect of isolation. I think now we've had a pandemic. That's probably helped with not just yeah. my family, but to kind of go. Well, LinkedIn did an article on it with to do with Zoom uh, fatigue. I can't remember what they titled it, but I'll call it that because people were getting bur- were getting burnt out with meeting after meeting after meeting. It's like, well, yeah. if a rugby player's got to run themselves into another brick wall. There's only so much that that player can do. So I think that was interesting. I did try and um, reword it for the general public so they could kind of use it. I didn't do it as well because, you, as you know, the, the language it's got its own vocabulary uh, in in the in the um, academic field of yeah uh, to be able to analyze things and, and and bring things to into conclusion. Yeah, I mean, rugby, I think rugby is an interesting field because I, the career span of rugby players is going to get shorter and shorter because at the at the very top level where they're playing week in, week out, and then they're not even getting summer breaks now because they go off on tour either with England or with the Lions or whatever, there's absolutely no recovery time. And these guys are getting bigger, stronger, faster. So the hits and the impacts are massive. So I think they're going to have a, their career span. It's going to be a bit like American football. I think they're going to be kind of three or four years at the top, and that will be your lot. Your your body just won't be able to take it. So that, that's a, that's a really interesting area, I think, of elite sport. Plus behaviour, because it's 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 taken me well, nearly a decade since I've retired to kind of go. Well, that's a business the aspect of the sport caring about the individual you're a commodity you're 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 yeah. a cog within an organization 
I don't think sports probably would like me saying that, but it's the truth. But in terms of you're only as good as you're worth at that moment in time. So yeah. you're very interchangeable and uh, it's easy to be discarded. But I think that's an element that I've put into my business perspective as well. You're not, you're not, other than you sports, the example I use um, uh, myself as a, a how would that be about six years old and my mum saw me in the sandpit playing by myself and she asked me, have have you chosen to be there by yourself or have people left you? I leave it as a question mark on the website. You make your own decision. I don't know. 30 years on, I don't don't know if I willingly chose to stay in that environment by myself because I wanted to be by myself (laughs) or because of the disability, the rest of the, my friends have gone off to play because yeah. they can't include me i'll never know unless i ask i probably could ask them but we're talking 30 years a long, long time to, yeah. to remember what you what you did and you didn't do but that's one aspect of, of it's it's pretty transparent of that's one thing i will not let you do is to to walk that path by yourself if there's a problem i probably got better at seeing those warning signs yeah the more i've got knowledge yeah, talk because, to someone because he's like, well, okay, you've had a little bit of a a wobble. Do you want to talk about it? Do you feel that you're going to go? Because I could probably see that it's, it's in a few weeks' time that's going to be catastrophized as, oh, here we go again, and yeah. it's it's I'm I'm not going to get the result that I want. Whereas it's like, okay, you you've you've either, as you mentioned stagnated, you've, you've plateaued, you're not the way's not going anywhere, or going in. In this case, it was going the wrong direction, which is probably even worse. Okay, do you want to let's plant let's plant the flag here, get it in the bud, and progress and and reassure you that obviously I don't want you to fail, I don't want you to quit, I don't want to throw in the towel because okay, I've got my own motives as well, but in terms of I don't want you to back on the the merry-go-round of trying one thing to the next and then yeah. you never ever have a success and then it goes into other behavioral things when uh, of the circumstance becomes you i mean it's a big thing in weight if you look at the most successful weight management programs a big aspect of the most successful programs is support actually you need a good support mechanism within the program. And I think this is where the NHS struggles because they haven't got the resources to give people the support that is actually required. And by support, I literally mean people being able to touch base with their clients two or three times a week, at least. Well, the NHS the, could not possibly do couldn't that. Couldn't do it. It's one of the things my, my two, I'll give him a, um, his name. My tutor on my course again, for the person, he's like, what the NHS should do, and this is seven years ago, is hand all of that over to the fitness industry. Obviously, the fitness industry would want some bit of a, some uh, moolah to go with it because we're talking a lot of people. Let's let us handle what we do best, and then you can focus on things that are more serious. Mm. Be it okay, heart that, that was one of the recommendations of my PhD was that we train personal trainers and practice nurses 
in nutrition, activity and exercise and let them run the weight management program. And when I repeated the research, because just after I finished my PhD, about two years afterwards, I went to New Zealand. I lectured at Massey University for two years. And whilst I was there, I worked with the Manawatu region, public health, and I trained all their nutritionists and some of their social workers in the weight management program that was formed part of my research. And they now have adopted that right across the region. And so rather than relying on their health service to do it, they've got social workers, nutritionists, um, family support people, all able to run these weight management programs. And certainly within, because I did a lot of work with the Maori and South Pacific Islanders, and those communities tend to trust their own people. They're a bit kind of wary of what they call white people, Pākehā. And they're very wary of Pākehā because the Maori have been so mistreated over decades where, where white Caucasians basically were using them as some type of research project with no interest other than their own at heart. So they're quite suspicious of kind of researchers anyway, but I was able to work with them and train their own people to deliver the programs. And because it was their own community delivering the program, it was way more successful. And so I think that's what we should look at here. I mean, I could train a practice nurse tomorrow to deliver that weight management program. And it would take me, well, four days because I could teach them the nutrition, the, the psychometric testing and everything else. So in four days, you could have a practice nurse that could run all your weight management program. But I've approached NHS Wales. I've approached GP practice. They don't want to know. So it's like, well, I'm banging my head against a brick wall here then because I've got research evidence to back up that it works. It's published research, but they just, I don't know, for whatever reason, they don't want to know. It's weird. Do you think you're going against tradition to a certain extent? Because if, oh, if you've got a problem, but this is what my business coach says, you go to a GP as a general practitioner. It's, it's, it's not specialist. If you've yeah. got, I don't know, a dodgy hip, you go to the the osteo specialist yeah. and, and things like that. So it's like it it did. If, if you've got scientific evidence to back it up, it's like well, that's the holy grail at that point in time. You could probably prove, disprove something down the line if you wanted to, or yeah. or add to it. But that's the that's the 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 luxury of of research. It's it, yeah. it evolves and and. It's not going well, this, away. Well, this was my argument. It was like, well, why don't we just do it and see how it goes? We'll, we'll treat it as a research project and let's see what the outcomes are. And they were like, no, don't want to do it. It's just, it, is that because it, it's is, really is, frustrating? Is is it because the resources are, are stretched so, it, so it thin? It could be, but when you think of what resources they would have needed, it's four days training. It's, for something that, that could most probably benefit a GP practice of what, 200 patients or something like that and take all the weight management off of the GP, which at the moment they're, they're currently just prescribing them Slimming World or Weight Watchers anyway, which is, is not a solution. So I, I don't know. It's, but I agree with your tutor that I think the leisure industry is really well-placed to help with the obesity epidemic, but, but I'm, not, think, I'm not sure the medical society, the kind of 
medical fraternity trust the leisure industry because there are so many Mickey Mouse courses out there. Do you think that's that, snobbery a little bit for there's their, a degree of on that their, on, their, on their end because of people? I'll, I'll tell people this. My reason to want to do P to get a PhD, I didn't obviously be able to get that, was because of the ti- the title. I know, I know that that's one of the reasons I ended up not going down that route because I, I found after my masters I didn't like education that much. <laughs> they got a bit more, um, but that's being honest, as because of the the being able to be naughty and then put the doctor at the front, yeah. and then there's the doctor of depending on uh, it, whatever you studied is not it's not probably on par to. I'll, I'll, obviously go above the the general practitioner and say doctor that's in a hospital and things like that I've, I've spent seven years obviously that you've spent a long time to, to be able to acquire that mm. and but then if we had coming back to my, my, my earlier point at the beginning of you know the accreditation like the Australians or the Americans you wouldn't have the Mickey Mouse of that's that's what we need. We need proper registration of qualifications that's government backed and is enforced. And and until we get that, I don't think anyone is going to take the leisure industry that seriously. To be honest, because I'm more than happy when people. It's very rare that people ask for my qualifications. Like, hey, I know, and that's a problem in itself. Because really, we we should be educating the general public to ask what this person's qualifications are and and until like when i trained when i did the ace qualification and i was in the states work because i worked for an american computer firm so i was over there for three months and it always fascinated me that when people join gyms there very often one of the first things they would ask is oh what are the qualifications of the instructors here and that was a question i'd never heard asked in the uk but gyms in the US, they had all their trainers' qualifications under the table in portfolios so they could show people. So it's a very different mentality. In this country, we, we kind of, oh, what equipment have you got? And have you got a sauna? Not, are your trainers properly qualified? And we don't ask that question. And, and that is the industry's fault because they should be educating the general public. When you go to a gym, this is what you should be looking for from your trainers. And if we did that and that started to happen, you'd get rid of a lot of the Mickey Mouse courses straight away because they'd be no use to man the beast because well, the public would be coming in going, well, I know that's not a very good qualification. I'm not interested in working with that person. Well, it's a challenge though, isn't it? It's, uh, I, I would, uh, what, what training academy did I do? Uh, training room. But I'd heard some horror, horror stories of, you know, uh, other, I other companies. and I, I'm not going to do it on air, but I'm telling you, I could tell you some not good stories about training room. Well, I think I think that's that's the that, and I think you can quite easily get burned in our industry because of it. Of the advertisement of what was mine, supposedly. Oh, DW doesn't exist anymore, but at the time, obviously, DW Fitness. Yeah. They were going to op- supposedly open uh, a new gym in Conway. Mm. That wasn't true. So I was thinking, well, okay, the nearest one is Wrexham or or Bangor down the coast because yeah. of the university populations. So well, that's mis that's mis 
that's I think um, if that was anything else, that's against trading, uh, trading standards because it's it's not true. So thus, yeah. you're misrepresenting yourself to me to 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 do. That. I want I was going to do the course anyway, but into in terms of because my family been on me for years as well. You've retired now. Why don't you go into this? Mm. Because I couldn't. Well, I shouldn't have been around people in the general populace because I was unfiltered. It was, yeah. why are you this? Because just look at, you know, like person on face value as, well, why why can't you just make a change? It's, it's as simple as doing it. But for me, those changes are not difficult. They're night and day. It's like, okay, I need to drink more water. Okay, no big deal to do it. Whereas for somebody else, if they've been brought up, as you mentioned, as a kid of drinking pop all the time, they probably wouldn't think to run themselves a glass of water under the tap. So we're coming to the close of this episode, Gary, and I'd like to ask this of all my guests, and I'm going to do it as a two-parter, so you're very lucky, because it didn't happen (laughs) that often. If you got to sit down with any athletes, dead or alive for that matter, who would that be and why? Lawrence Taylor, linebacker for the New York Giants. He was my absolute hero when I was playing. I used to play American football and he was just an awesome athlete. And I didn't know he had that focus. There was something about him. So I'd love to talk to him. And then... If you got to sit down with any coach, dead or alive, for that matter, who would that be and why? That's a good one, coach. Do you know what? Most probably Alex Ferguson. Because not only was he such a good coach, he was a really good man manager from what you hear. You know, I mean, I I don't know him, but I, I bet he'd be fascinating to talk to about his views on coaching and managing stars and what have you. Yeah. So, yeah, Alex Ferguson. And my last question before we sign off is if you had to summarize what we've been speaking about today into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? Change your lifestyle and focus on being happy and healthy. So once again, Gary, thanks again for coming on the Mindset Athlete Podcast. Thanks for inviting me on. I've enjoyed the chat. Thanks again for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed this episode and got loads from it. Anything that was included and discussed will be available in the show notes below. And I would love to hear from you. Come and connect and ask your questions. I've been James Roberts from jamesowenroberts.com. Remember this quote by Chris Hart. An athlete is a mindset. It's how you prepare, think and execute not by some elite status or physical stature. Anybody can be an athlete.